I've told you guys this before in the past, but Christmas time for me is a time of mixed emotions. Um, I've shared how my father passed away tragically on Christmas Eve of 1983. Uh, I was just eight years old at the time. And so there's not a Christmas that goes by that obviously that's not on my mind because it's directly connected to Christmas Eve. On the flip side of that, my wedding anniversary is December 27th, which is coming up just a few days, 10 days out. And uh, this year, Amy and I will have been married for 20 years. Um, some days it seems like much longer than that, for her specifically, <laughs> not for me. G.K. Chesterton said that marriage is a duel to the death. But in all seriousness, um, I love my wife. I'm very happy uh, that she stuck with me this long. I don't really know why, but I'm thankful for that. Both of my children were born just a couple of days before Christmas, December 20th and December 21st. And so, um, but on the flip side of that, uh, my oldest daughter, Natalie, spent the Christmas of 2005 in the NICU at University Hospital. So uh, on Christmas Day, I can't help but remember holding that little girl with the big chubby cheeks in the NICU not being able to take her home on Christmas Day. There was a lot of uncertainty during that Christmas. And so it's hard for me to get through a Christmas season without remembering things that bring great joy and at the same time remembering things that bring sort of sadness and um, loss, right? But I think it's pretty common for most people, actually, I think the holidays are a time where uh, we're joyful because it's the holidays, but at the same time, we experience these other emotions that come along with that. For some of us, maybe the holidays remind us of how hard life has been or how disappointed we are in the way that life has, has gone. We feel alone. Maybe at Christmas time, we miss loved ones because we're not able to be with them. Maybe at Christmas time we remember loved ones who are no longer with us. Maybe at Christmas we're dreading the family interactions that come when there are broken relationships and dysfunctional relationships. Maybe we feel financial stress, financial failure. And so for those of us who may be experiencing these range of emotions, both joyful emotions and sorrowful emotions, joy and loss, we have This incredible reminder from God's word that we've already talked about a little bit this morning about how God has stepped into human history to actually do something for his people. And so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 to talk about this. So we're going to look at Colossians 2 and Luke 2. I'm going to read in just a second from Colossians 2 verses 6 through 7. We'll get to some more verses later on in Luke chapter 2, a few verses But Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, this is what it says. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ 
the Lord. Colossians 2, starting in verse 6 and going on from there, what Paul is really talking about is what God has done in us and what God has done for us. In Luke chapter 2, we have an announcement of Christ's birth. What's similar about both passages is that in Luke 2, we're told that we have a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in Colossians 2, we have this description of Jesus as Jesus Christ the Lord. And so there's this shared titles between the two passages. I think it's an interesting connection because these names are important. These titles are important. It's two different books of the Bible written by two different authors at two different times. And one describes Jesus as a Savior who is Christ the Lord, what the angel said. And Paul says, Christ Jesus the Lord. The descriptors are very similar. The names are very similar, almost exactly the same. And so in both Luke chapter 2 and in Colossians chapter 2, we have this reminder of who exactly Jesus is. And so I want to highlight that for just a second before we move on. But again, Christ Jesus the Lord, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And why that's so important is that on a real day in history, to real people, during a very specific time, at a real place outside of Bethlehem, God made an incredible announcement. An announcement about a person who would be our Savior, our Christ or Messiah, and our Lord. Right? Luke chapter 2. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior. Right, we, we believe as Christians, as people of God's Word, we believe that anybody who's ever sinned against God needs a Savior. When the angel appeared to Joseph in Matthew, he said to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, his name itself, is a reminder that God saves and that God's people actually need to be rescued. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Christ is the English word for Christos, which means anointed one. That's the Old Testament word for, um, or in the Old Testament, it's the word Messiah which is the one that's long predicted, long awaited, the one anointed above all others that would fulfill all the hopes of God's people is God sent the Messiah. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Jesus is the ruler, the sovereign, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Lord of the universe. We talked about that last week, how Jesus created everything. Jesus is the fulfillment of a king that would rule forever in the line of David. So in this announcement that we have in Luke chapter 2, and this tie-in in Colossians chapter 2, which is a uniquely Christ-centered book, we're reminded of who Jesus is. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. And he's the Lord. And they all have these different connotations. But what's important about it is the reminder that God intervened in history through the person of Jesus, who was uniquely God, like we talked about last week, in order to be the one who saves us, in order to be the one who fulfills all that God promised, in order to be a king that rules forever. And that intervention changes everything. And that's part of what I want to talk about this morning. 
what that intervention actually changes for you and I very specifically and very personally. And so here are three things I want to talk about from Colossians chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2 is this. God acted in history on our behalf as our Savior, as the Messiah, as the King to defeat our enemies, to raise us from the dead, and to bring us peace. God acted in history as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our Lord, to defeat our enemies, to raise us from the dead, and to bring us peace. God acted in history on our behalf to defeat our enemies. When I think about the word defeat, I naturally think about sports. That may not be where your mind goes. You may think about something different. For those of you who have a military affiliation or a military background, Maybe some sort of battle comes to mind. Maybe when you hear the word defeat, you think of some um, personal hardship, some personal sickness, some personal thing in your life that you had to overcome and defeat one way or another, some setback. But me, my mind naturally goes to sports. Uh, And in high school, I had the opportunity to play a lot of sports. I went to a small um, private high school, Curtis Baptist High School, which at the time was all the way up um, Broad Street by Lake Olmstead. That's where I went to high school, and I had the opportunity to play football, basketball, baseball, essentially whatever I wanted. And when I played football, we were not very good. Um, Curtis had just started a football team when I was a freshman in high school, and for a lot of reasons, we just were not a good football team. Uh, that never really registered with us, um, but we weren't. And so we had this arch rival named Augusta Christian, and Augusta Christian is a school on the other side of town in Martinez, and if, well, Martinez, but Martinez, um, on the other side of town, and so when we were playing Augusta Christian one year, I don't remember which year in high school it was, uh, we were out of school actually the day we were playing them, it was a holiday or a teacher's work day or something, I don't know why, but we were out of school and Augusta Christian wasn't, and so the entire football team, which is about 15 people, Um, We gathered together at Curtis High School. We all got in our cars and trucks, and we caravanned across town. And we decided we were going to drive through the Augusta Christian property, waving flags in the back of our trucks and screaming about how we were going to defeat Augusta Christian and whatever. And so we made this big show about how we were just going to destroy that football team. And then that night we played them, and we lost by about 70 points. And so I'm uniquely, I can uniquely identify with the idea of defeat. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. This is what Paul writes. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in him being Jesus. If we look at verses 14 and 15 here, these two verses uh, very specifically tell us how Christ himself worked to defeat the enemies of God's people. Nothing more powerful than the death of Christ has ever happened. 
Nothing more powerful than the death of Christ will happen. The first enemy defeated that we see in this passage is the record of debt against us. It says that he nailed the record of debt to the cross. In the Roman world, a record of debt was sort of a written note of wrongs, a written record of indebtedness. And in some cases, when a person was crucified or executed, that record of debt would be nailed to the cross above where they're being crucified so that their crimes would be known. That's familiar to us who are familiar with the story of Christ because when Jesus was crucified, there was a record of debt nailed above him. If you guys remember that, it said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But Paul uses this word picture here of nailing that record of debt to the cross to denote God nailing our sin to the cross. Our our rebellion against the holy God, that record nailed to the cross. God himself resolved our indebtedness. God himself resolved our guilt and sin by nailing it to the cross. Because of our sin and rebellion, the laws of God had become a deadly witness against us. And we were indebted. And the passage here says that Jesus nailed that indebtedness to the cross so that the great enemy of our sin and guilt and debt... Christ defeated on the cross. Actually, in history, intervening as our Savior to nail our record of debt to the cross. This passage talks about a second enemy as well. In verse 15, they're called the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Right, and so we take this to mean that Jesus defeated the host of evil spiritual Forces at work against God's people, the devil and his forces. They are as good as defeated because Christ dealt a lethal blow to them on the cross. We still fight, we still live in this now but not yet tension of where Christ has defeated our enemies, but we haven't reached the point in history where we see the complete fulfillment of that with Christ's return. And so we continue to fight, we continue to battle, but we already know that the battle belongs to Christ because he dealt the decisive blow, right? Satan and his forces cannot win against God's people because Christ dealt the final blow. That actually happened objectively in history. Christ defeated our greatest enemies. He defeated our Satan, sin, and death. He defeated our sin, and he defeated our enemies on the cross. God acted in history on our behalf to defeat our enemies. We see a couple of other things in Colossians as well. God acted in history on our behalf to raise us from the dead and make us new. Have you ever restored anything and made it new all over again? Have you ever restored a a house, a piece of furniture, some clothing, a car? This idea of restoration of taking something old and making it new again, is actually a cultural phenomenon, I believe, um, in our society today. This idea of restoration, 
really is a cultural phenomenon. I can't, I can't tell you how many people I know that love Chip and Joanna Gaines on HGTV, right? And I can't tell you how many people I know that have traveled to Waco, Texas to go to, to where, I think it's Waco, right? To go to where, where they have their shop or whatever it is. It's, it's a thing in our culture. People love Chip and Joanna Gaines. And that's their whole thing, to take something old and make it new again, to take something old and to restore it. You can't turn on HGTV without seeing a show about remodeling something or taking something old and making it new. You can't turn on the History Channel without seeing American Pickers or some, one of these other shows like that. It's, it's a cultural thing for us. Our culture loves to see old things made new. And, you know, that's really a gospel idea. Our culture doesn't own that idea. And actually, for us, it's a gospel connection to our culture. It's a, it's a bridge to the larger culture in the world around us. Because that's what Christ did for us. Colossians 2, 11 through 13. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right? The, these verses describe very specifically what Christ has done in us, not just for us, but also in us, in such a way that we benefit from what Christ has done. He uses two pictures here. One is the picture of circumcision. One is the picture of resurrection. Verse 13, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so what he does is that he takes people who are spiritually dead, unable to live on their own, and makes us alive in Christ. That's the miracle of the new birth that we talk about with Jesus. You were saved if you were a believer because God spoke a life-giving, resurrecting word into your heart. You were dead, lifeless, unbreathing, incapable of living on your own, and Christ resurrected you with a new birth. Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, did that on your behalf to raise you from the dead, spiritually. Christ reached down and brought you to life. The other picture of what God does in us is the picture of circumcision. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting on the body, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, that's a harder concept for us to understand. Um, but we know that in the Old Testament, God's people practiced circumcision as a way of um, identity, identifying who God's people were. And Paul compares the saving work of God in us with that practice, except he says that it's a circumcision without hands. And so he's not talking about something physical. He's talking about something spiritual. And he's talking about how through Christ, through what Christ has done for us and in us, that 
Christ has uh, removed away this old body of flesh. It's a reference to the sin-dominated, selfish bodies being cut away by Christ's work so that the old, unbelieving, rebellious self, sinful self, is cut away and there's something new instead. And so in that way, Paul is saying that God makes a person his very own. God identifies that person as his very own through this work, through this resurrection from the dead and the cutting away of the old flesh. So there's two pictures in Colossians of what God does for us, historically, objectively, actually accomplishing as Christ the Savior as our Messiah and as our Lord. He raises us from the dead and he circumcises our heart and strips away the old rebellious self and makes us new. Even as much as he's defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, and the record of debt that stands against us, right? God actually intervened in history to accomplish those things. There's a third thing that I want us to see that God interacted, intervened in history to accomplish, and that was to bring us peace. Do you know what it means to not have peace? Have you ever had the experience of being anxious and worrying? Have you ever laid awake at night, not able to sleep, and worried about something or thought about something or carried the weight of something on your shoulders? Have you ever dreaded interactions with other people because you know there is conflict with that other person that has not been resolved and there's no peace? The Old Testament picture of peace is this word, uh, maybe that you've heard before, it's the word shalom. And shalom means something more than just the absence of conflict, however. Shalom pictures... um, Something along the lines of everything being in its proper order, of everything being in its proper place, of everything working the way it was intended and designed to work. It's sort of like the difference between a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle being in a thousand pieces or the puzzle being put together, picturing what it was intended to picture when it was all together. Right? It's everything in the proper place, in the proper order, functioning as it should be. But we don't always have that kind of peace. I think we all can, I think we all can agree to that. All of us have this experience of anxiety, anxiety or frustration or whatever it might be. Anger, frustration, discouragement, depression, hopelessness, whatever words we want to use. There is no doubt, though, that our hearts struggle to find rest and our hearts struggle to find peace. And sometimes, like I said before, the holiday season serves to just magnify that lack of rest and peace. Luke 2.14, this is after the announcement I read earlier, uh, where the angels say, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. And then where they go on to talk about Christ Jesus, the Savior and Lord, Luke 2.14 says this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
peace among those with whom he is pleased. Right? We know objectively from Colossians chapter 2 that the way that we come to be reconciled to God and to have peace with God is through the work of Christ. Because Christ defeated our greatest enemies on the cross and God made us new and rightly reconciled to God. So for those of us who have um, received Christ Jesus as Lord, like Colossians 2, 6 says, receive Christ Jesus as Lord, we know that that peace is something that's guaranteed to us by the work of Christ on the cross through his defeat of our enemies and through us through him making us new again. Those who have been forgiven of their debt and granted victory in Christ. You and I were created for this peace with God. That, that, that's actually why, part of why we were created, to have peace in a relationship with God. You only need to look back to Genesis to see that. We were created so that the most important thing in our lives would be our relationship with Christ. That's part of who we are. We were created to have the high honor of being the worshipful, obedient friends of God. That friendship with God would be the most meaningful reality of our lives. The peace with God would allow us to have peace within, not because we're strong or wise, not because we know what's happening next and we're in control, not because we never experience hardship and suffering. Listen, the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer. The call to follow Jesus is a call to hardship. It is uh, a uniquely American experience to say that following Jesus means that everything will be okay. That's not the kind of peace I'm talking about here. The call to follow Jesus is a call to take up your cross and experience hardship like Christ did. Jesus even said that. So, so this promise of peace is not, it's not a call to never experience hardship and suffering. It's a promise to have peace because we have a relationship with the one who rules over all and who leads us like a shepherd and who does know what is going to happen and who does have the interest of his people at heart. The absence of hardship and suffering does not mean that we're at peace with God. Hardship and suffering is a unique part of the Christian experience, and we don't talk about that enough, uh, but that's just the reality. And the peace that God promises is, is a peace that helps us to stand up under the weight of those things. Peace so that even though we can't predict the next day, we have a relationship with the one who controls the next day. When that peace with God is shattered, then the result is that our hearts are not at rest. There's this really horrible picture in Genesis chapter 3. It's in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have sinned. And God has come down to commune with his highest creation in the most beautiful place that was ever created. That sounds awesome, right? But as God comes down to meet with Adam and Eve, things turn bad really quickly because Adam and Eve aren't running to meet God. They're hiding from him. And as God calls out to them, they 
are hiding in guilt and fear because they have been disobedient. And that peace with God that they were created for has been shattered. It's, it's a horrible picture. And this pronouncement in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus, Christ, the Savior, the Lord, this reminder from Colossians chapter 2 that Christ has objectively in history actually done something to defeat our enemies and to make us new. This pronouncement in Luke 2, this passage in Colossians 2, it reminds us that God has fulfilled his promise that he is intervening in history to make peace between God and man. God has intervened in history to make a vertical peace between God and man so that we might be rightly related and reconciled to God. That's why Jesus was born that we might be reconciled to God, that he might defeat our enemies. It's impossible to talk about the birth of Christ without looking at the bigger picture. But going on from there, that vertical peace with God, through that vertical peace we have with God, God has made a way for us to be at peace with others, to have a horizontal peace with those around us, right? And this this is really important. This is super important. God has made a way for us to be at peace with others. We live in a world where there is unresolved conflict all around us, where there are unbelievably divisive people, even in positions of authority, that serve to widen gaps and intentionally create conflict, to take peace away. And inasmuch as that is occurring around us, it should make it obvious to all of us that the ramifications of the gospel extend far beyond the peace that God has given us on an individual level. It is true that Christ defeated our enemies on the cross. It is true that Christ uh, made a way for us to be reconciled with God on the cross. But what Christ did for us and in us It's not intended to stop there, right? Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that you could be saved. Jesus died on the cross so that you could come to know him and to be about the purposes that God has for you. We just got through Peter. We just talked about that through the book of Peter, how how God saves us and set us apart as his own for his purposes. And so it should make it obvious to us that the ramifications of the gospel extend far beyond just what Christ has done in us. That piece is incredibly important. God intervened in history by being born and dying on a cross to purchase that piece. But we have to see that brokenness within leads to brokenness in the community that's around us. And those of us who have met God and experienced the peace that Jesus actually accomplished in history on our behalf, Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. Not people who intentionally provoke others into conflict, not people who intentionally provoke others for our own benefit, but people who seek to see God's peace go to others, that they might be rightly reconciled to God and that they might be reconciled to one another. A Christian, the implication of the gospel as a Christian is not that we pursue conflict, it's that we pursue the peace and shalom that God has promised. That is a unique fruit of Christians, that we pursue 
peace as God has called us to pursue peace. Right? You know this. Jesus didn't come first on a political mission to establish an earthly kingdom. Jesus didn't come on an educational mission to just correct our worldview. Jesus didn't come on a psychological mission to make us feel okay. Jesus' mission was not a religious mission just to make sure we started obeying rules. Jesus' mission is much more radical than that and much more fundamental than that. Jesus came to save us, to pay our debts, to make us new, to bring us to life, to bring us peace with God, that we might proclaim that peace to the world around us, even as much as we're looking forward to Jesus' return to earth, as we remember his first visit and look forward to the second visit. The pursuit of peace is part of what Christ has called us to, in as much as he has objectively accomplished something on our behalf. Those who would seek, those who would seek to pursue intentional conflict, those who would seek to pursue intentional harm of others rather than peace and what God would have for others don't really understand the gospel and may not have even been changed by it because the peace that God brings us, God has given it to us just as much so that we would take it to others, right? That peace that God gives to us is a unique relationship that we will not find anywhere else. That relationship with Christ, because of what Christ has done, brings a peace that we cannot find anywhere else. And that peace should extend far beyond us to the world around us as God uses us to proclaim forgiveness of sin and peace with God that Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. Right? And so if we're here this morning, and, we're, and, and I want you to hear these things, and I, and I hope that the Holy Spirit is working in your hearts and mind to hear what God wants us to hear through his word. But ultimately, the call as we hear these things, as we hear that Jesus actually intervened in history to be our Savior and Lord, as Jesus actually intervened in history to be the anointed one of God who accomplished something on our behalf and to fulfill all that God promised, as we hear that Jesus intervened in history to defeat our greatest enemies, as we hear that Jesus intervened in history to make us new, as we hear that Jesus intervened in history to bring us peace with God. The call on our life this morning as we hear these things is to believe those things. Right? And so I don't know where you are personally, I, but I know this, if you're here this morning and this idea that Christ has done something on your behalf is new to you, then the call on your life is to Receive Christ like Colossians says, Colossians 2 says, for the first time. It's a call to believe that Christ actually did something for you. It's a call to be rightly related and reconciled to God. It's a, it's a call to receive Christ. If that's a new idea to you, then, then I would encourage you to grab somebody and talk about it. You can grab me and talk to me about it when I come down off the stage in a minute. You can talk to Ben over there. Um, whoever you came with this morning, that's a conversation you can have. What it means to have peace with Christ and to believe the gospel for the very first time and to be changed because Christ died for our sins and did something to make us new. Let me encourage you to act on that. For those of us who are here this morning, 
who may have received Christ before, who has a relationship with Christ, the call in our life is still to believe this. Because if we believe these things, if we believe these things, it, it should have some actual ramifications and effects in our life. And it's when we don't believe these things, it's when we uh, fail to believe all that God has done for us that we experience this lack of peace that Jesus died to bring, right? So the, the call this morning is to believe these things, maybe for the first time, maybe to believe these things again in faith and repentance, um, that, that Christ would be at work in our hearts and minds to bring peace to us, but also to the world around us. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday at Redemption, and it's during this time of response that I would encourage you guys to to act on what it is that God is speaking to our hearts and minds this morning, whether that means to believe for the first time or to believe again in repentance and faith. Um, in just a moment, the band's going to come back up here. Uh, they're going to continue to lead us in some songs. It's going to give us the opportunity uh, to worship by singing together, um, singing songs uh, to God. We're also, during this time, going to have an opportunity uh, to continue to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back where you can drop your tithes and offerings and continue to worship through giving. Um, you can continue to worship and respond by sitting right where you are, reflecting on what you've heard, praying, grabbing somebody and talking about it if you need to, but to respond in that way. And also, we'll have an opportunity to respond through communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption. We come down this middle aisle Go in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Because when we do that, we're remembering Christ's body that was broken for us. We're remembering Christ's blood that was shed for us. And we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. That's what scripture actually says we do when we take communion. We're remembering what Christ has done and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe this is true. That Christ did this for us. Um, so I'm going to pray for us. And we'll continue on from there. Uh, and continue to respond in those ways. So let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the reminder from your word this morning uh, that you have done something on our behalf in history to bring us peace with you. God, that you have done something um, on our behalf to change us and to make us new, that you've done something that would allow us to be rightly related to you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his work on our behalf. And Holy Father, even now as we continue to respond, as we continue to pray, to give, to sing, whatever it might be that we do, Holy Father, I pray that we would continue to be drawn to you, that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we might be changed, that we might have peace with you. And Holy Father, we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.